Hey guys, go to the Bible and uh, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I want to tell you right up front, okay? I believe this message that God put on my heart for tonight is the reason I'm here this weekend with you. It's the next 25, 30 minutes we're going to spend together. Why came up here before? So I, I want to I want to ask of you to do your very best to just focus in on what God wants to say to you right now. He's already been speaking to us across testimony. But as we look into his word, I really believe this, this word that he has for us tonight is, is the word why I came to deliver to you. Because I believe that God's calling us with an extraordinary life. We are not to settle any longer for ordinary. He's called us to extraordinary. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will capture us. Capture our hearts, capture our minds, capture our spirits. The very essence of our souls, Lord, we want to be totally consumed by a greater revelation of Christ and the life you have called us to live in Christ and Christ in us. So, Lord, I pray right now that you will speak to each of our hearts and, Lord, anoint your word afresh and new for us. And Lord, I believe you are calling us with all my heart. You are calling us from the ordinary to the extraordinary. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. All God's men said, Amen. I love the story Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. Well, the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him and asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him and said, This man deserves to have you do this. Note verse 5. Because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with him. He was not far from the house when the centurion had sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't, don't trouble yourself. Why do you not deserve to have you come under my roof? That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word that my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority. The soldiers under me, and I tell this one go, and he goes, I tell that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. 
I have not found such great faith even in all of Israel. Jesus was amazed at a man he never met. Now wait a minute. John the Baptist had been born. John the Baptist was there when the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove and the voice of God was heard. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Did not Jesus say that John the Baptist was the greatest man he knew, born of a woman? Hello. And now he encounters this Roman centurion, this soldier, this captain of the guard, most likely living in Tiberias, right around the shores of the Sea of Galilee, overseeing that providence of the northern Israel. This, isn't he a pagan man? This Roman centurion, this soldier? And his faith is greater than all of those of Israel? What? Jesus was amazed at this moment. What was amazing? One thing that amazes me is in verse 5. In verse 5, the Jewish elders, who are under the oppression of the Romans, are going and interceding on behalf of this Roman centurion to Jesus, pleading with Jesus to go and heal a servant. Now think about that. They're interceding for their enemies. They're interceding for them. Saying, hey, 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 he deserves you to do this. He loves our nation and he built our synagogue. Wow. You know, one of the first things that armies would do when they conquered lands, they would come in and destroy their houses of worship because they wanted to show their dominance over their gods, over their belief, over their faith. They wanted to break their faith. So therefore, they were going to destroy their house of worship. Remember, when the rebellion came in AD 70, what did they do? They destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem as well. Because most likely that the Romans are the ones who destroyed the synagogue and converted in the first place as an act of power and dominance for the region. And now the one who's over the region rebuilds the synagogue for the Jew. What? You know what's extraordinary about this man? It's the way he loved. They said he loved our nation and he built our synagogue. It's amazing when you help restore the things that are most sacred to people, how it speaks of your love for them. Because nothing is more sacred to the children of Israel than their place of worship where they kept their sacred Torah, the law. And when they would gather and read from the sacred word and worship the one true living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is this God? Who is this man? The Romans. They're pagan. They believe in a multitude of these God that they have monuments to. Who is this guy? He's sincere. We know one thing about him. He's extraordinary. In the way he loves is what people hear about him. What did Jesus say? Anyone can love those who love you, but what makes you extraordinary is when you can even love your enemies. By this only will know you're by disciples the way you love one another. 
couple years ago, a friend of mine, Jack Hanna, you know who Jack Hanna is? Jack Hanna is the guy who's always on the late night shows with all the animals. Okay? He's the head of the Columbus Zoo, great guy, he's a member of our church. Uh, and so uh, Jack said to me, he said, Pastor, I want you to go uh, to Rwanda and see the mission I had built over there for special needs children. So I was going to be in Kenya. We just finished a school in Kenya uh, that we built in one of our orphanages in Kenya. And I was over there. I did a leadership training for about 900 pastors in Kenya. And then I, I jumped on a plane and flew into Rwanda. I'm in Rwanda. I go down to, to this little village where Jack has built this uh, special needs center for children. Because Rwanda had a horrible civil war. And in that war, a lot of children were maimed and injured. And then you have all the children that have been abandoned down there. And I walked into to Jack Hanna's little center that he has there in Rwanda. And I walked into it, and I was immediately touched. I, tears came to my eyes. I saw children sitting there who were blind. And they were trying to, with their hands, weave some placemats. I, I saw children sitting in wheelchairs over trying to run sewing machines. And they were learning. And what they were doing in the center, they were trying to teach the children practical ways to support themselves and, and learn certain things that the gifts that they could do. And, and I'm, I'm looking at this, and I'm going through, I see the whole spectrum of children, from the blind to the crippled to, to the mentally handicapped. I mean, all spectrum up in there. And it was very neat, very orderly. People were working with them. It, and I was very impressed with the facility and the organization of it. And when I came in, they were expecting us, but the director, a young man by the name of Frederick, was not there. He was off taking care of a child. And, and they told me he would be back soon. So I'm in there, and I'm just expecting everything. My heart's already attached to what's going on here with these kids. Because we have a great special needs center at the church, and, 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 and we're caring for hundreds of children. And so suddenly he comes walking up the walkway. Here comes Frederick. He's got his arms behind his back. He's walking up to me. And he's got this beautiful smile. And here's this, here's this young African boy, probably in his, in his mid-20s. And he comes walking up to me. And, and I said, are you Frederick? And he says, yes. And so he came up to me, and, and I immediately stuck my hand out to shake his hand. And when he brought his arm from behind his back, he had no hand. He just had a stub right here with the wrist. So I didn't know what to do, so I just grabbed his forearm. And I pulled him into me to hug him. And so I grab his forearm, I pull him in, and when he hooks me with his other arm, I feel the stub of his other arm in my back. I later learned his story. Frederick was 16 years old, he was coming home from school one day in a bus, and the gorilla stopped the bus, these gorilla warriors. They brought everybody off the bus with the intention to kill them all. They grabbed Frederick because one of the drillers recognized him from their tribe, pulled him over, gave him an automatic weapon, and said, we will spare your life if you will kill everyone else on the boat. He refused to do it. They took him to a tree, tied his arms around this tree, and a guy took a machete and cut off one hand and then the other, and left him to die. They slaughtered everybody else on the boat. Frederick was strapped to a tree. The only thing that saved his life was they tied him so tight to the tree that the rope served as a tourniquet and stopped the bleeding, stopped him from bleeding to death. 
he laid there unconscious most of the time. He, he then came kind of conscious and he was moaning, groaning. Then someone came upon that gruesome scene. And then they heard him groaning over there in the bush, strapped to a tree and his life was spared. Jack Hanna found out about this boy and took this boy in and raised him up. And pretty soon, Frederick becomes now, as a young, mid-20-year-old, he's the director of the whole center. I'm blown away with By his smile, his attitude, his, his energy, everything about him just blew me away. That, the love that I saw in this kid, but here's what really blew me away. I learned this later. I learned this like a year later. When he came over to the U.S. and we wanted our church to meet Frederick and meet this center that we're supporting, he walked into a village. He had not been in for a long time. And he walked into like a little store where they had a little cafe inside this little store, a little fat stuff. You got to understand, you've been after you know him. He walks in there and he looks, and there he is face to face with a man who cut his hands off. He was shocked. He, he said he stepped back. His, he lost he, his breath was taken from him. He was so startled by looking at the man who had perpetrated that horrible, horrific crime and cutting his hands off and leaving him dead. And he said, pointing up the stub of his arm, You're the man. You're the man who did this to me. The man said, No, I'm no, no, no. He's right. And so the man tried to get out of the way. And Frederick blocked him. He said, no, I know you. I would never forget your face. You're the one who did this to me. And I want to tell you, I forgive you in the name of Jesus. When I heard that, I, I wept. I, I said, oh, Lord, I know not of this love. This is a level of love I know not of. I later talked to Frederick after I heard this story through Jack Hanna. And Frederick was in my office, and I said, Frederick, tell me about that moment when you, you met the man who cut your hands off. And he said to me, Pastor, all I can think of is Jesus hanging on the cross, forgiving me of my sins and his love. What else could I say to the man? But I forgive Was there a greater demonstration of the moment of God's love than when Christ was on that cross and they came to rebuke and mock him and said, if you are the Son of God, cast yourself down. All the horrible things that were hurling at him. And there he is, the Son of God, dying for their sins and our sins. And what did Jesus say? Out of God's love, flow through him and flesh out <coughs> the hurt, the end, the pain. Flesh that. He goes through life without his two hands, but he has a heart. He is extraordinary. He's changing lives, rescuing children, inspiring nations. This young man. Oh, 
it, it challenges me. I, I no longer want to love in an ordinary way ever again. I, oh God, help me that your love will flow through me and help me begin to love people in an extraordinary way. I refuse to let offense take hold of my heart from anyone. I want to have the shield of God's grace and forgiveness all around me. So no matter what happens, what's said or what's done, it quickly goes. I say, you know what? By the grace of God. I tell you, one of the most freeing things in your life is to live a life and you're not offended. Just don't take offense. And that's hard sometimes because, you know, a person does that stuff. And I can pretty well handle about me. If you criticize my family, I'm going to bust you up. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, that's when we get really, that's when we get, you know, really whatever. I mean, that's my, my biggest struggle is not worried about what's said about me or done to me. But it's, it's if I think something, you know, was out of balance or somewhere else. Or somebody's going to mess with you. They're going to mess with me. And I'll say, oh, God, help me have this compassion and this love. That is extraordinary. It set this man apart. You know, the other thing that set this man apart was this extraordinary generosity. Because you think about it. They did not have the money. They were being taxed every penny they could. The Romans came in and raped Israel. Took everything of value they had and made them slaves in their own nation. So where did the money come from to build the synagogue? It came from the synagogue. He built the synagogue. So he had to take from his own personal wealth and invest it to rebuild the house of worship for those Jewish people in what was the hometown of Jesus' ministry. He faced his ministry in Capernaum for three years on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And you know what makes this man extraordinary? Was his generosity. Pastor, when we started, we were in a schoolhouse. And uh, we were there for several years. And uh, one of our uh, young guys met this kid on the beach. We do our baptism service on the beach. We baptized one time 800 people on the, in the ocean at one time. We, we had all of our pastors. And by the way, you know me, I like to do things to set records. We did about 27 minutes. We baptized 800 people in 27 minutes. We just Come on, name of Jesus. Come on, name of Jesus. Come on, name of Jesus. So, we, we had this kid got saved. His name was Dirk. And Dirk was a surfer dude. And I mean, Dirk, can you picture him? Straggly long hair, you know, just straggly stuff. He had the surfer shorts on, never wore shoes, only wore flip flops, you know, and just, you know, whatever. And so Dirk would just, you know, kind of lay back and always come to church and call everybody dude. I was pastor dude. Hey, pastor dude, what's up? And so he's coming to church and he's in shorts and he's never, you know, and back then we were very traditional. I had suit and tie. I sat on the platform. We were very formal, you know, all that very traditional kind of thing. So Dirk came out and said, Dirk, Said son of us, we gotta get some pants, we gotta get some shoes. You know what I mean? You come to the house of God, let's clean yourself up, look the best you can, let's look good, present your best one to the Lord, and the whole bit. Okay? And so he did pretty good for a while. I was very proud of him. Until one Sunday morning, he came walking into church. He was late. He come walking in, strolling in, and he's you know, he said, Hey, dude, what's up? He's high five with people something. We're in the middle of worship. He's walking in, walking, walks right down the front row, sits down, no shoes on. 
sitting there with no socks, no shoes on, just sitting there barefooted, happy, goofy as can be. Hey, baby, I'll pray God. Pray God, dude. Dude, God, dude. You know, I'm just like, and I'm sitting up on the platform. I'm going, what is this boy doing? He's coming to the house of God. I don't see a burning bush anywhere. What's the deal here? What, you know, where's the shoe? Get your shoe there. I got one here in the front row. No shoes on. That's right. That's what I'm saying. So what's the deal? He's got a little spirit right here. Come on, girl. What's up, dude? Anyway, anyway so... He's sitting there, and I'm getting all this stuff. And Pastor, I can't believe it. The whole message, all I'm thinking about is this kid sitting there. No shoes off. No socks off. Come on, baby. What are you doing? So as soon as service over, I went right to Dirk. And I tore into him. I said, Dirk, now you know, son, I told you, come to the house of God. Behave like, you know, you should. You should come dressed. It's disrespectful to walk in here with no shoes and socks. You should bring your best friend. And I'm, you know, I'm just tearing into it like you won't believe and when I finally get done, he goes, well, Pastor, I, I, uh, I had shoes and socks on when I started for, for church. He said, but you know, outside, right before I came out, I met this homeless dude, and said he didn't have any shoes and socks. So I figured, what would Jesus do? He, he just tried to get his shoes and socks. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm sitting up for judging this kid, and he's just giving away the only pair of shoes he had to some homeless dude. I probably passed that homeless dude and didn't even notice he didn't have any shoes besides your own. I'm up there preaching the gospel with that God's man. And there's, there's dirt demonstrating the heart of God, the love of God, and demonstrating a spirit of generosity. May I tell you something? You don't have to have a lot to have the spirit of generosity. You may only have one pair of shoes, but you can you, you can demonstrate an extraordinary generosity about your life because your focus is outward and not inward. I love what Bob is up here talking about his life being focused outward. Is that it? Rick Warren wrote his book, most of you have probably read it, The Purpose Driven Life, and I love his opening line of the book that said, It's not about you, it's about God. You know what makes us extraordinary is when we are generous in a world that lives with a spirit of entitlement. And everybody is in the, in, in the whole focus of what can I get for me? What can I get? Versus living with the spirit of generosity is, what can I give? How can I give? How can I honor? How can I add value? How can I bless somebody? Here's one thing I know. When you give extraordinary love, you position yourself to receive extraordinary love. And when you give extraordinary generosity, you position yourself to receive extraordinary generosity. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. The word does. Okay, I want to put pause for a minute. Let's just pause. Guys, let me talk to you. As leaders and as men. When it comes to the area of our finances, God needs to be number one. And you shouldn't even blink about tithing. Tithing should be the starting point of the stewardship of your life. 
And don't talk to me about do I tithe my gross or net. You tithe off your gross. You make a hundred dollars, ten of it, baby, right away goes for the work of the kingdom of God through your local church. Then your generosity starts after your tithe. Now I'm telling you, I've been practicing this my whole life. I was taught this as a boy, and God has blessed us. My wife and I have been blessed to put, give our home away twice for the kingdom of God. I had people give their homes away to build stuff up. Well, how come they're giving their home away and we're not? I mean, what kind of big deal is that? We're going to leave by example. So, man, it, it forced me in a corner. I had to go, okay, here we go. Here goes our house. And, and it's amazing how free it is, really, just being that position, just get whatever I have. I'm like, so here's what I've learned about true spirit of generosity. People who are really generous, they go through life like this. People who are not generous go through life like this. But here's what I've learned. When you go through life like this, guess what? You're in a position where God put a lot in your hands. And you're also in a position for God to take a lot out of your hands and put it into the lives of others. But here's what I've noticed. If you go through life holding on to the little bit you have, guess what? You're not in a position to receive anything. Because you've got, your, you've got too tight a grip on it. If you relax and release it unto the Lord, guess what he'll do with it? He'll bless it and multiply it. And he'll pour so much in, it will be embarrassing. It's embarrassing. So, well, I'm now, I'm not a prosperity preacher. I, I, I've never preached that you give to receive. Never. I don't do that. It's not me. I preach you give to give. You give to honor God. You give because you recognize God's number one, and, he, and he, everything I have is from Him in the first place. Everything I have is from Him. Hello. Any talent or gifts I have to earn, any kind of income at any time, or to win ball games or whatever we do, or run your business, it's from God. It's a gift from God. So therefore, should be hesitation. So guys, let me just say this right now. If you're having financial struggles, the best thing you can do is start tithing immediately. Don't even hesitate. Don't blink. And by the way, if you're not tithing, it's a trust issue. You're not trusting God. So I just want to put that in, Okay. Now, okay, who falls again? Let's go back to the message. Here we go. A pastor, I should have had an amen out of you when I talk about the time. <laughs> Come on, brother, preach it, preach it. Come on, boys, tie, tie, tie. Amen. Yeah. I preach sometimes messages on God's got a bigger shovel than you have. Whatever you shovel in, God will shovel more than you're shoveling. You just better. Buckle up and get ready for what he's going to do. I, I can just tell you all kinds of stories. How God is blessed when we've just been focused on giving away and investing in others and investing in the kingdom and keeping his priorities towards what God does. It's amazing. But I want to tell you something. Don't think you have to have a lot in order to be generous. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with how much you have or don't have. It's an attitude for life. It's a perspective of the kingdom. And you're looking to add back. Some of you have got a gift of time. That is the most valuable thing you can give someone. Okay, not on that. But he was extraordinary. Dirk was extraordinary. Frederick was extraordinary. <coughs> By the way, Frederick didn't have anything. He didn't have anything. You all see where he lives. I went in there and I found out they, they had little things in there to sell and try to make money for the mission. I said, well, what do you have for sale? He said, well, you got all these things. I'll buy it all. But he said, yeah, I'll tell you what. I bought a long day back since then. I'll sell it again. 
And a buddy with her, I said, hey, go in there. I got stuff for sale. I'll be right. I said, go in there. I said, buy, buy it all. And he said, he bought it all and left it there. <laughs> he did actually bring one or two things back. The third thing I noticed about this man, and this is really the key to this whole passage. Your Bible. Here's the key. Here's what turned Jesus on his heels, and here's what stopped him dead in his tracks. And here's when Jesus turned and said, I'm amazed. I'm not satisfied with great faith in all of Israel. It's based on one word that's said in the scripture. One word. It's when the man said this one word. He said, I am a man under authority. He said that one word, authority. And that's what stopped Jesus dead. Because, see, the whole struggle in Israel was this. They did not recognize the authority of Jesus Christ as a divine son of God. He did. And you know what else I love about him? This guy had a humility about him because he did not feel he was worthy as a Roman centurion coming from a pagan culture to defile the presence of a holy, righteous Jewish man and he did not want him to come into his house where he could come under criticism. For come, wasn't Jesus criticized every time he'd go eat with sinners? Every time he'd hang out with tax collectors? Every time he would go into some other, what the, 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 they ruled as a not a holy or righteous place? Jesus was always criticized. Isn't it amazing? This guy was sensitive enough to say, don't even come into my house. You don't have to come because I am a man of authority. I recognize your authority. All you have to do is speak the word and my servant will be healed. That's what stopped Jesus in his tracks. What an extraordinary confidence he had. Extraordinary love. Extraordinary generosity. And extraordinary confidence in the authority of God's word. All you have to do is speak the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus, we have nothing recorded that he ever met this man. He did not go to the house because when the servants returned, they found the one that was near death was now alive and well and had been healed. So Jesus never had this encounter, yet we have this recording about this extraordinary man with an extraordinary faith that was life-giving. See, guys, here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Stay with me here. God has called you to be extraordinary because you carry in you the source of life through Christ to everyone you encounter. You are extraordinary because you are tapped into the source of the great creation of all things, the creator of all things. Because we are men under the authority when we recognize that, it changes everything about us. It changes our perspective. It changes our lives completely. We go from ordinary to extraordinary because suddenly we start to act with extraordinary love, extraordinary generosity, and extraordinary confidence because we are sons of God. I have a doctor in our church, uh, named Dr. Crandall, who's a cardiologist. 
well known the graduate of Yale, college degrees in medicine. Had twin boys. One of his sons, age 12, contracted cancer. It was a struggle for quite a while. Chauncey did everything he could medically. Now he did the very best cancer clinics in the world. Got the very best doctors in the world. Then he, he went on the spiritual circuit, went to every place he could to try to find healing. Took him to every place he could to get healing. He, he, he did everything he could to save his son's life, but his son died. When his son died, Chauncey had a, he was at a crisis moment in his life. And, and, he, and he, he would tell you this if he were here tonight. He was at that moment, I had to make a decision. Am I going to turn away from God or am I going to run to God harder than I ever have in my life? He chose to run to God. And his greatest grief and loss. And in that, he went to a whole new level of faith and confidence. He's my cardiologist. I'll tell you what. He went into the hospital on these gardens and he was uh, called in for, uh, to take care of a patient and he was walking through the emergency room and he saw all the doctors and, and all of them coming out of one of the rooms, not the room he was called to, and they had just pronounced the man dead. And as he's walking by, they, they, he, he heard them before he got to the room call the time of death. They called the time of death before they were taking everything. The nurses and the doctors and left walked out. He's walking by the room. He glances in. He sees the man's already turning this ash color because he's not been breathing for some time. And he walks by, and he walks by. The Holy Spirit stops him in his tracks and says, You're a traitor. And he said to him, and he argues with God. He says, You don't know what they're talking about today. He says, You're a traitor. So he stops him. And at that moment, he said, I have a, I have a, Am I going to bathe? God's prompting in my heart? Am I gonna, what am I going to do here? You know, he's a professional. All the other professionals have walked out. What is this? Like, so he walks in the room. This guy named Jeff Mark was laying there dead. Been pronounced dead. No pulse. No respiration. Pronounced dead. They're disconnecting with him from Jeff Mark. They've already pulled the sheet up. Chauncey walks in and says to the one nurse remaining in the room, um, I, uh, um, I, 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 listen, recharge the shock. We're, we're going to shock him one more time. She said, the doctor, we've already pronounced him dead. We've shocked him multiple times. We've tried multiple times to resuscitate him. There is no life. He's dead. He's been dead for, for, for I don't know, for a long time here already. I mean, he's already, he comes ash. He's already, and, and, and it, she, he said, I know. I know I'll take full responsibility, recharge, give, give, give me whatever the, that thing is. And he didn't say that, I'm saying that. Hey, well, give me that thing. No, he didn't say that. Pull the sheet back, they take the defibrillator, boom, hit him one more time. The nurse is shocked. Chauncey's shocked. And now the word begins to spread. A dead man has just been brought to life in New York. Every Saturday night, about the third row back, Senator Jeff Marco said, 
Every Saturday night, about the second row to my far left, Dr. Kramer said, his wife, Deborah. Extraordinary confidence in the Word of God. Wow. I kind of like a cardiologist who raise you from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I, I want a guy that's the best of the best, and plus he's got faith to raise you from the dead. That's my cardiologist right there. Baby. That's why I picked him. <laughs> you know, sometimes guys, we, we underestimate what God has done for us. And we think oftentimes, well, that's for Dr. Cameron. Well, that's for Coach. That's for Pastor Steve. Uh, that's Bob's story. But we always like, somehow, we, we look at others and say, yeah, well, yeah, that's you know, good. Well, I think about Frederick, man, that's really the way of it. Eric, that's stupid. I'm sure I'm going to get one of them and get some of my chefs. That's the biggest lie of the enemy that he sells us. I'm going to tell you something. You are a man of destiny. God has created you. And Paul says it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. You were created by God and for God. And God has a master design for your life. And that life is to be extraordinary. Jesus said, I came that you might have an extraordinary life. John And yet the enemy of us has gotten us to settle for order. And then we justify our ordinary lives because we look around and everybody else is living pretty much the same ordinary life. That's not the That's the lie of the enemy. Some of you can justify your tax and say, well, my tax, you only knew my tax. Hey, here's what I love about Jesus. Once he forgives you of your sin, he remembers your past no more. The only one that remembers your past is the enemy of your soul. He keeps flushing it up to you. And every time he brings up your past, just point out his future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now he starts messing with you. I, you know what? When the enemy messes with me, I talk to him out loud. Now I know that you may think I'm very big. I'm driving that rope off to the enemy. Hey, baby. You're going to French fry one day is all i got to say about you. <laughs> you're going to be a crispy critter. That's what you're going to be. And you have no power on me because greater is he for me than he's in the world. I'm going to that conference through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who's free for me. If you want to mess with me, come on, bring it on right now because I tell you what, i got goodness and mercy behind me and they will knock you out. Now, I know you're going to talk about that. No, you're sophisticated. You're the main man. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to know that I have goodness and mercy with me. They have done research and they've written a dissertation. Now they're going to bust you up. I 
Some of you, you need to experience the extraordinary gift of His love for you. And if you've never fully surrendered your life in the Lord, that reason, tonight's the night for you just to say, Lord, come into my life, I surrender my life to you. Give me this life. I have past life and my sins and those things that kept me from you, but from this day forward, I will never settle for everything. For you who have already given your first to Jesus, it could be that God's asking you to step into the new extraordinary life of the I was 37 years old. I've given my life to Jesus when I was a boy. I tried to serve him, serve the local church every weekend of my life. I was president of the But I will tell you what, I went to Israel for the first time in 1983, and I walked in Jerusalem, what they call the Adelbos, in the way of the cross, up to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I walked into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They believe that the church is built over the place that we know as God, the place of the stall where Jesus was crucified. just got signed the old and I'm there in that place, and I, I, we had a group, and I got away by myself. I was even away from my wife. And I'm sitting there contemplating. And I, I wish, I, I wish I could explain it to you better. Bob was trying to explain when he walked into the entrance of the church what happened to me. And I'm sitting there at the place that our Savior died for us. And suddenly, wave after wave after wave after wave of God's love was flooding over me. And I'm weeping, and I'm weeping, and I'm weeping. And I'm suddenly, it's like I got a little glimpse into the love of God for my life and His sacrifice for my life. And it blew me away. It's like, I don't know that I ever comprehended the depth of His love for me. I was speechless. I didn't want to leave. We went back, loaded up our buses, and went back to our hotel. My wife was exhausted. We had been touring, you know, all day for many days. We'd been up in Galilee, and we made it down to Jerusalem. And then the little group we were traveling with, they were going to have a little meeting that night. It was a Thursday night in December of 1983. And, and, and we're going to meet, have a little meeting after dinner. I couldn't even go to dinner. I was so full up. But I, I thought I'd probably need to go to the meeting. My wife said, hey, I can't go. I, I'm exhausted. The kids are exhausted. We had a lot of sudden daughter with us. 
And they stayed with me. And I went down and showed me. I don't even know who this black preacher's name was. I don't know. He's from Kansas City. And they asked him to come up and, and, and kind of open the, the, the little meeting in front. And I don't know, it's maybe two minutes. I'm sitting in the back, just a few rows from the back on the coming out of He started to pray. I don't remember what he prayed. All I know is when he prayed, heaven came to me. I couldn't stay in my seat. I got out of my seat. I buried my face in, in my seat and I started weeping. And I was still so torn up from the, the encounter of God's love up there at the place of the cross. And I'm sitting there and I just simply said, Lord, I don't think I've ever committed my life to you. It's like I, I know you I know you saved me from my sins, but I don't know if I've ever committed my life to you fully with no conditions. No conditions. Well see, I always had conditions. I wanted to be a coach. I, I wanted to do this and then kind of attach everything of my service to God. I kind of wanted to attach it all because I knew I was supposed to. But that moment was the turning point in my life. I surrendered everything. I abandoned everything. I said, Lord, I no longer have control of my life. I am yours 100%. I'm all in. I'm fully committed. Whatever you want from me, wherever you want me to go, wherever you want me to do, I'm yours. Now, for me, he called me to do something I didn't ever want to do. That was be a pastor. I served churches as an infant pastor. For about 15 years, I saw how internal church politics work. I saw all the ugly sides of church. I saw, I said, man, who in the world can write my hair? Oh, good gracious. Six months later, Christ Fellowship was gone. And now I'm a pastor. 30 years ago. I don't know what God's going to do with you. I'm going to do one thing. And you're going to know that your life is going to bear significance for eternity because of the people that are waiting for the impact of your life upon their life. Because you were a man who was fully committed to God. Do you understand that the eyes of the Lord are ranging throughout all the earth, waiting to show themselves strong on behalf of you? When you take that step and say, Lord, I'm all in, no reserve, you got me. I surrender all. That's it. I'm your man. I'm kingdom-minded first. Everything I have. Number one priority is you. No longer my will, thy will be done on earth as in heaven through my life. That's it. I'm in. You got me. And I'm going to be the best I can be at whatever I do for your honor and glory. Whatever I do, word and deed, I do this unto the Lord. For you. If I'm in my business, my business is going to be the best it can be to bring honor and glory to you, and I'm going to take the, the fruit of that business and bless the work of God and the kingdom of God's business. That's who I am. Whatever it is I'm doing is for you. Because I'm all in. Father, I pray. I pray that you would help us to be men who are all in. Father, I pray that we will get a glimpse of your love, maybe like you never known before. Father, if there be one or more men here, 
for young men with us today that have never fully surrendered their life to you, may this be the moment that they come forward with courage and boldness and surrender their life to you. Finally, the life you have for them, we've the new life, the extraordinary life, the exciting life, the adventure of God. I, I, I believe, Father, you're calling every man in you to go to the next level of our community with no conditions, no reserve, to give our lives to You've heard your story. I'm sure your pastor's told it to you about William Borden, heir to the Borden fortune. He leaves college to go learn Arabic in Egypt so he can be a missionary to the Muslim nations of He found him dead in a little room in Egypt. Beside him on the table was his Bible. Inside of his Bible, he had short three phrases that he had written in bold letters. He said, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat. We did not retreat from the call of God and the mission of God or the challenges of God in the face of all hell and its opposition. There is no retreat. Therefore, we can live our lives. I'm going to ask our pastors. Pastor, if you've come, and some of our pastors and elders are here, if you've come. Guys, can we get some more on the keys or something to play for us? I just want to spend a time in Jesus. Take a moment to pray. Seek the heart of God. These, these godly men are here to pray with us. You know what I learned? That night I made that.